and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now in the name of your Son, Jesus. We ask just for your blessing on our time, God. God, we humbly ask that you just send your Holy Spirit into this place, into our hearts, and into this room. God, those listening online, those hearing my voice, we ask that you speak to us. God, may I disappear. May your word come to the forefront. Lord, I pray you reveal yourself to us in the words of the Bible today that you would just spiritually do a supernatural work in us. God, we want to know you more. We want that relationship with you to grow deeper and richer, that we would just be made more like Jesus. It is in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for worshiping. Uh, Glad you're here. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 3. Go ahead and get your Bibles out and we're going to jump into that. This is worship. This is worship. This is no different than our singing. Um, You need to engage. I need to engage. We want to grab a hold of what the Holy Spirit is, is bringing us today in the Word of the Lord. Amen? So as we continue in this series title, So That You May Believe, we are continuing this amazing chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. For those of you who have not been with us, uh, maybe you're new, first time, or you haven't been with us, we're working our way through this, this book of John, and in particular, this conversation between this leading Pharisee and Jesus in the middle of the night, or late one night when no one else is around, and specifically... What we have been doing is we've been examining what it means when Jesus tells Nicodemus what it means to be born again. We've used that term born again like scripture or regenerated or sometimes we say saved. Now we're we're hanging out here in chapter 3 because just so packed full of stuff for us. I, I think this, the question that we're asking today is one of the most important questions that we can ask. I think the most important question we can ask is who is God? Like who, who is he? Like what's he about? What are his attributes? But this is like the, the second most important question is how do I get to him? How can I have a relationship with this God? How can I know him? How can I have this relationship? And that's really what the entire book of John is all about. That's why we call it so that you may believe because it's in believing you have a relationship. So we're going to look very closely at the words of Jesus as he talks to Nicodemus. Now because we've been here for a few times together, let me just recap for a moment and remind us where we are, in case you're new, or just to remind us, let's get started in, with just reverently standing before God. Uh, go ahead, if as I read this passage, if you can, if you can't, don't worry about it. We're going to go through verse 9, starting with verse 1, John chapter 3. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can, the, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it is it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Praise God for his word. Amen. You may be seated. 
Okay, real quick, let's just remember a few of the big things we've, we've nailed down, but what we've learned so far. Nicodemus is a religious man, but he is not born again, at least not yet. But at the same time, Nicodemus, even though he's not born again yet, he can see Jesus' miracles and his teaching and know he's from God. Which, if you think about it, means that you don't have to be saved to see that Jesus is from God. You don't have to be born again to realize God is at work in Jesus. But Jesus tells Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of God, this relationship, you have to be born again. In other words, being born again is not an optional thing to get into heaven. Then we looked at verse 5. That says, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's not referring, we learn, to water baptism or our physical birth. But it is referring to Ezekiel, the Old Testament book, chapter 35. That we need a new spiritual birth, a cleansing. Do you remember? Because when we see that word water in the Old Testament, it means this cleansing that needs to take place. And God is the one doing the cleansing. Then in verse 6, we studied last time in depth what Jesus said. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is what? Spirit. Now remember, flesh isn't just this physical body. It's the body, soul, and spirit. That first man and woman sinned the very first time and the world fell. After that sin, the first man and woman were incapable of producing something different than what they were. That's the core meaning. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Original sin. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that because we are separated or dead in our sins, we can only produce what we are, right? Flesh gives birth to flesh. So that's why Jesus tells us here that we need a new body, a new birth, body, soul, and spirit. All three. So look at verse 6 again. Whatever is born of the flesh is, say it, flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit is, now notice the capital S here. That's the third member of the Trinity. That's why it's capitalized. Second spirit is us. We are born into the Spirit by the Holy Spirit. And just like our physical birth, conception, we had nothing to do with that. That was a work of God creating us. The same is true with our new spiritual birth. Look what the Apostle Paul said. I'm sorry, Apostle John said in John, 1 John chapter, let's see, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. This is in the Gospel of John, this is the book of John, same writer. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. Simple as that. Or in other words, we know we are born again because the Holy Spirit is working in us in conjunction with Jesus himself. Now, what happens when the new spiritual life comes to us when we are regenerated or born again, this new spiritual life, this new spiritual birth brought by the Holy Spirit of God in that new spiritual life, we begin to see Jesus for who he truly is, Savior and Lord, the Son of God. We are given faith to believe grace comes and saves us through Jesus. Grace from Jesus, we repent of our sin and turn the leadership of our lives over to Jesus to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Now that happens, boom, instantaneously. And although it happens in an instant, we don't always know exactly when it happened. Especially if you were born, as, uh, born again as like a little kid like I was. I didn't know exactly when that happened. We receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We are given new life. We believe that he teaches us through his word, the Bible. Now, if you'll remember back to chapter 1 of John, that 
key verse that explains exactly what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. John tells Nicodemus this, John 1, verses 12 and 13, kind of a touchstone verse for us. But to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, he, Jesus, gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the, say it with me, flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Do you see it? Do you see it here? It's starting to make sense, isn't it? It is God that is work in our being born again, our regeneration. It's him who causes us to be born again with a new spiritual life. Not us. But right at the same moment that the Holy Spirit of God causes our birth, we see Jesus for who he really is and we trust him to save us. Is that making sense? Are you guys conscious? I just was wondering. Okay, so if we in our flesh cannot produce a new birth in and ourselves because whatever is born of flesh is flesh and then whatever is born of the spirit is what? And then if we are born again with that new spirit in us, the new connection to God, this new family relationship because now we're children with God, what is that? Well, it is so important to get this down. Listen to what Jesus tells us in John chapter 6. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Verse 63. The Spirit, capital S, so that's the third member of the Trinity. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Do you see the work of the Trinity, the Godhead here? God the Father wills our salvation of the believer. Jesus makes it possible by his death and resurrection. Amen? And then the Spirit of God is the one who brings our new birth, our regeneration. It is a work of God, one God, made possible in the working of God through the three persons represented God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we could stop right here. We could preach an entire series on this next area, but we're just going to go a little bit deeper. I'm going to try not to go too long here, but the, the, the word spirit here. Now, if, you're, if you've got something to write with, write this down. If you don't have anything to write with, take a note on your phone or something. Here it is. Spirit in Latin is spiritus, means breath. I'm going somewhere. Go with me on this. Spirit in Latin, spiritus, means breath, as in, it's where we get the words like aspire, conspire, inspire, perspire, even expire. All of those have that same root word meaning. Think about it. We aspire, we take a deep breath and we try harder, try it again. We conspire, we put our heads together, think through, we breathe through each other's thinking, right? We can be inspired by having someone else give us ideas to take action on. We perspire when we sweat water out of our skins. We exhale that water. A person expires, breathes out their last breath. Now, spirit means breath, and breath means life here in Christ. That's what it's talking about. Do you see it here? Give me a nod. Have you expired? Okay. All right. When it says in John 6, 63, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life, the very clear implication here is that the Holy Spirit is breathing into us a new life, a new spiritual life. But let's go a little deeper here. Hang with me. Hang with me. You can get this. You want to know this. I promise you. The Greek meaning of the word spirit. And it's Greek is what John is writing this gospel of John originally. So here it is. Here it is. Spirit in Greek is pneuma, means breath. You go, Paul, they both mean breath. Man, you guys are fast. (laughs) It's where we get the word pneumatic. All the guys go, I know what that is. Air tools, right? We love air tools. (laughs) Or, Or like the word pneumonia, a sickness of our lungs. We don't want that. It's our breathing. Now, here's the cool thing. Both the Latin and the Greek mean breath. That's true. So the breath of God that comes to us through the 
Spirit of God. Are you with me? One more thing here with the Spirit. In the Greek, the word for Spirit is going to mess you up. Pneuma, that means breath. And also means wind. Same word. Same word. We just know it's wind because of the context. Spirit in Greek, pneuma, means breath and also means wind. Now put that in your toolkit because you're about to use it. Why is this so big right here? Because remember what Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 7 and 8. Watch close. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind, the pneuma, blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the pneuma, the spirit. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? This is so cool. God is breathing new spiritual life through the word of God by the Holy Spirit. That means, that means we can only be born again as a result of God's breathing new life into us. You see that? We can only be uh, born again as a result of God breathing new life into us. Or to say it another way, being born again never happens just because a man's decision, but solely because it is according to the good pleasure of God to do it. I mean, think of what we've learned throughout the book of John so far. The last few weeks studying the the dead, the spiritually dead, don't take any action on their, their own. Why? Because they're dead. But what if you like nudge a, a dead person just a little bit more? Like you go, let me just move them like nudge them. Will that help? No. Why? Because they're dead. What if you put a tack into their thumb? Will they react? No. Why? Because they're dead. Dead people don't do things on their own. The way we are constantly described throughout all of Scripture is that before we are born again, we are dead in our sins, unable to respond. We have to be given the breath, the pneuma of life to bring us to life, to be born again. You guys tracking with me? By the way, this is how it has been since the fall of Adam into sin. This is the way it's worked since Since that first sin, think about the patriarch Abraham. Does Abraham suddenly decide in a foreign country, goes somehow I'm going to be God's man and I'm going to start a nation. Hey God, I'm going to start a nation for you. No, in fact, if you'll read, turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua records this. It's much later on, but he records what happens. Joshua 24 verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, he's talking to the Jews, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. By the way, when you see Lord, remember that's his, that's his personal name, that's Yahweh, right? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham in Norway, and Norway, Nahor, lived be beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Look, little g-gods. He's not a, not a believer. He's not a Hebrew. But I took your father, this is God talking, Abraham, from the region beyond the Euphrates, Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. I want you to see this. Then check out, skip down to verse 14. Then God, this is quoting God specifically talking to Abraham. Look what God says to Abraham. Therefore, fear the Lord, worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. God calls Abraham. Abraham out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Abraham was worshiping other false gods when God called him. He didn't know who Yahweh was. 
In other words, Abraham turns to God, not because he simply decided to. No, it was a movement of God to call Abraham to a relationship with him. Pure grace. Now bring us back to Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus this in verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now hang with me. Watch very closely at this wording here. The wind is the what? The pneuma. The Spirit blows where it pleases. You're getting this. Jesus is saying the wind, the Spirit, capital S, is making what? A decision. He's choosing. The Spirit of God is making the decision to move where it wants to go, where it wants to go, and and how it wants to go. But we don't see it, and we can't see it. But what can we see? Well, the effects, just like the wind. Just like the wind outside, physically. It blows, you see the leaves move. We can't see the spiritually the, the spiritual wind blow, but we can see its effects. The same is true for the Holy Spirit in bringing about the new birth. We see it change lives. You've seen it in you if you're, if you're a believer. It's the, it's the last line that Jesus really brings this home to make this point. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Or in other words, there is no one born of the Spirit except this way. Or to say it another way, no one is born again except by the Spirit. The point is that the freedom to act is the Spirit of God, not ours. Remember, we're dead spiritually, separated from God, unable to connect to Him. Or in other words, we don't cause the Spirit to breathe life into us, to bring regeneration to our spiritually dead lives. We can't. Only the Spirit can do that. Now, here is what we're talking about. Here is what we're talking about. The work of God to bring life to a spiritually dead person is called sovereign grace or irresistible grace. Write those down. This is important you get this. This is foundational truth. The work of God to bring life to a spiritually dead person is called sovereign grace or irresistible grace. God's all-powerful, right? Somebody give me an amen. Means he's omnipotent, all-powerful. If he's all-powerful, is there something that is more powerful than him? Just give me an answer. No. Some of you are like, I don't know, is the word Jesus? Is that right? No, the answer is no. Is there anything more powerful than God? No, no. He's omnipotent. If that is so, it means that he is what? Irresistible if he makes the decision, which means that his will to act is irresistible. He never fails. Nothing can stop him when he wills something to happen. That, praise God. Meaning nothing can stop God. Can I get a big amen? Do you agree with that? Okay, because if you don't agree and you think there is something that can stop God from acting on his will, it seems to me that thing that you think can stop God, you're saying that thing is more powerful than God. And thus is God. God is completely effective. Completely effective in bringing new life spiritually from spiritually dead people. That's why we call this a new creation when we're saved. Now, we don't get the wrong idea, idea here. When we use the reformed term doctrine or of saving grace or sovereign grace or irresistible grace, it doesn't mean that we don't resist God. Now, check this out. I resisted God. If you're saved, you resisted God. Look in, look in Acts 7, 51. The writer is talking to the Jewish, talking about Jewish people uh, in general. He's saying, he's quoting here. He's saying, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. 
Since the fall of Adam into sin, we've all resisted God's regenerating work in our lives. I mean, think about the very first sin. What does Adam and Eve do as soon as they sin? They hide. That's right. They hide. They, they go, oh, we, can't, we can't handle this. So God goes and takes the initiative. So why do we call this doctrine sovereign grace or irresistible grace? Because, like Nicodemus here, he doesn't believe yet at this point. Even though it's Jesus himself telling him how someone is saved and born again. But eventually, Nicodemus does come to faith in Jesus. Why is that? Because the sovereignty of the Spirit means that when God chooses, he will overcome the rebellion and resistance of our sinful dead will. Oh, please get this. We definitely resist God. But when God chooses, he will overcome the rebellion and the resistance of our sinful dead will. Or in other words, he can make the offer of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross appear so compelling and the reality of our desperate situation so very clear that our sinful resistance is broken then we are finally free to come to Jesus in faith and receive that grace he offers in his death and resurrection. Amen? And what about the timing? Sometimes it's years from when someone hears the gospel message to the time they are actually born again, saved. And sometimes a person, boom, responds right away. Now, we'll talk about this timing of when God overcomes a person's resistance, overcomes a person's resistance more in the future. But here's what you need to know. The timing has to do with his purposes, his plans, and the best way to bring about glory for himself. That's going to mess some of you up. Just hang with, just believe it right now. We'll get to it. But just know that God overcomes our resistance right here. Now, to us, understanding what that looks like in is that I made the right decision to follow Christ Jesus. And praise God you did too if you're a believer. But what we have learned from the last several weeks, remember, faith is a gift from God, right? God brings us life and we respond. Now, there are plenty of Christians that disagree with this doctrine I dare say most do. I did for many, many years. I was, man, I was the leading critic of this doctrine, as as you know. They said things like, if God drags us to become a Christian, how is that free will? They say, doesn't that make us into robots that don't freely choose God? And I would say, no. No. Because while we are dead in our sins, we have no freedom at all. It's what dead in our sins means. We simply have no ability to make a choice to choose God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. But once we have been born again, regenerated, we can and do choose by our own free will that has been made alive in Christ Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a bit like the Disney princess, Snow White. Any fans of Snow White? It's anybody, has anyone ever heard of Disney? Snow White. Are you guys here? Okay, now, this is a sweet old movie. If you think about it as a, as a daddy, it's kind of creepy. Um, this little gal going to live with seven little guys. She has eaten, where we pick up the story, she's eaten the poison apple, right? She has died. The witch has killed her. She's laying in a glass casket uh, surrounded by the seven crying dwarfs. Can you see that picture? They're kind of circling there. You see it, some of you? They're crying. She has no ability to choose the prince she falls in love with. Why? She's dead. She's in a casket. She doesn't even know that there's a prince to fall in love with. Why? She's dead. 
So how does Snow White fall in love and live happily ever after with a prince? The same way you do. The prince comes first and kisses Snow White, wakes her from death. Then she realizes who the prince is and chooses him. She loves this prince. Now think about it from Snow White's perspective. To her, it just seems like the prince is there and she's fallen in love with him. Are you with me? From Snow White's perspective, she is waking after the prince kisses her. She doesn't even remember the kiss. It's like that for Christians. We are dead in our sin, unable to respond until the Holy Spirit (sighs) breathes new life into us. Then we're able to see Jesus for the first time, who he really is as the Christ, the Redeemer, as the book of Revelation calls him. Check this out, the bridegroom. Look at just a few verses that speak to this. This new birth, this regeneration. Jesus says this in John 6, 44. Jesus' words, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Skip down to verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Or check out, what Luke records for us in the book of Acts. Do you know Luke wrote Acts? He says this, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord who were all had been appointed to enter life, to eternal life, believed. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Appointed. Chosen. Here's another one. Here's another one. This is Paul. Look in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is God talking. So then, it does not depend on human what? Doesn't depend on human will. I'm not... How you get any clearer than that? Or on effort, but on God who shows mercy. Why does it not depend on human will? Because people are spiritually dead. Have I mentioned that? And, and that means that we simply don't have any ability to choose God. Or look in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. For it is God who is working in you both to what? will and to work according to his good purpose. Or the passage we've looked at over and over in this series again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this, it's talking about faith. This is the this, is the, this it's talking about. Faith, this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. It's just a giant like tidal wave of scripture that just engulfs us, doesn't it? It destroys any argument that somehow that it was me that was was responsible for my belief in, in God for my salvation. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. What Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus here is it is not us, it is only God. Through the Holy Spirit, by the work of Jesus on the cross that saves and regenerates us. Now write this down. Write this down. This is important. Jesus teaches in John 3, 8 that being born again decisively and ultimately is the work of the Holy Spirit's will. Once we are regenerated, our will is free to choose Jesus. Some of the light bulbs just went on, didn't they? Some of you go, oh. Oh, oh. Jesus teaches in John 3 that being born again is decisively and ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit's will. Once we are regenerated, our will is free to choose Jesus. Hmm. Now let's be clear. This is not the way that most of us viewed our salvation, is it? Some of you are shaken right now. You're going, this is not the way I viewed my salvation. 
There are a lot of churches, even entire denominations, that would that have a view that believes that we are saved when we take the initiative to find Jesus, to invite Jesus into our lives. But I believe from Jesus' words, speaking to Nicodemus here, and throughout both the Old and the New Testament, that it is God who chooses us first. Now, that opens up a ton of good questions that are racing through your mind. We'll unpack these and many, many more. We won't leave a stone unturned as we walk through John together. Because that's what the book is about, is how we're saved. Jesus paints this very clear picture of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. That comes from God. It's, it's why we call these doctrines of grace. We'll unpack these and many more in the series as we move forward. But just because we can't unpack all of it or you don't totally understand how all of it works, it's all of it right now. It does not mean that we can't get this part down. Grab a hold of this thing. Because after you see what Jesus is talking about with being born again in chapter 3... You have to decide, as a believer in Christ, how are you going to respond? How does this change the way you view your salvation? How will it affect the way you live and share the gospel with those? Nicodemus, in verse 9, you're going to love this, verse 5, he goes, how can these things be, asked Nicodemus? (laughs) He goes, he didn't get it yet. It just blew his mind. But then later on in John 19, we'll see him again. When he risks his position, his money, his power, even his life he will give up to go and take Jesus, the Christ, down from the cross, wash his body, and prepare it for burial. He loses everything because of that. Man, I hope that is you today, that you choose Jesus because Jesus has called you from death into life. As you look at Jesus's teaching Jesus lays out for us here, it seems to me that there are two basic directions that you can walk out of here with. You can go this way or this way. One is to be threatened by this doctrine. Or you can be humbled by it. Because I have shared this doctrine over the years with people. There is one group that says that this doctrinal truth makes them feel helpless and out of control and sometimes even angry. Like salvation is, is their ability, and that scares them. People sometimes even get really, really angry, viscerally uh, angry, because they have never been taught this basic doctrine of truth. Some of you go, I've never heard this stuff in my life. Some of you have been in church and never heard it. That it's all about God's work, and then our choosing Jesus. Dude, this doctrine that was taught... It's been taught as a foundational part of becoming a Christian for two eons. Back 75 or 100 years ago, even the littlest kids coming out of Sunday school in a church understood this doctrine that is blowing your mind right now. But somehow, churches quit teaching this, at least in the United States. And that, my friends, is why it's so important that we teach verse by verse through the books of the Bible so that we don't miss basic foundational teaching like this. If you grew up in church and you don't know this foundational doctrine, it's because pastors simply skipped over it. Why? Because they were scared? I don't know. Because it's difficult to explain? Because it's uncomfortable? Because there's easier, more fun things to preach out of Scripture. I mean, we got a nation full of churches that want to tell you how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And it's all about you. Guess what? It's not. But here at Bentry, we're not going to preach just the parts of the Bible that we like. We're going to preach all of it. Amen? I've tried to figure out why some people are so resistant to this doctrine of God's grace or what we also call God's irresistible grace, his sovereignty. I find it hard to understand why some people really dislike this doctrine. It's like this group of people say, don't you tell me that I have no power over my own will. Don't tell me that I am somehow spiritually dead and totally dependent on God's gift of sovereign grace to wake me from 
that death. Some will even go as far to say that doctrine impugns the very character of God that you preach, Paul. They get angry and say, no, I choose God, and then God has the choice to accept me or not. It's almost like they would rather Jesus give a message in John 3 that just confirms their own ultimate self-determination. That Jesus goes, oh, you're, you're worth it. You're so good. Oh, you're good. I got to save you. you. You chose me. I guess I'll choose you. But there's a second group of people. When they hear this message that God chooses them before they chose God, they are excited. They're pumped. They're humbled. (laughs) And I think that's the difference between the two groups. The second group, these guys know how bad their sin was in the sight of a holy and perfect God. They know and see that they are utterly helpless, guilty of sin, so bad that they have no other option. They're at the rope's end. They know that they can't be good enough because of the sin they wrestled with. They know how screwed up, how evil they are to a holy God. They hear this message that Jesus chooses them right in the middle of their mess when they didn't even know or care about who Jesus was. This group of people knows that Jesus never came along. Uh, This group of people knows that if Jesus never came along and woke them from their spiritual slumber, they would have stayed dead in their sins. Man, this is reformed doctrine right here. It is why we call it the doctrines of grace. It's all grace that we respond in faith. And we know that faith is a gift from God. It does not come from within. It comes from God. This is what the church has taught as a part of historical orthodox Christianity from the very earliest days. It's American Christianity that screwed it up. Jesus didn't see you respond to him and then he responds to you. No, he lifts you out of the miry clay of sin. Of shame. When you know the worthless blackness of your heart, no one could ever love me. Jesus says, I do. I do. When Jesus says in verse 8 that the spirit, the pneuma, the breath of life from God blows and chooses where it wants to go and who it wants to give life to. This man, this group says, I don't know why you chose me, but I love you because you love me first. And I was not worth choosing. You chose me. This group is not threatened by a doctrine Jesus describes to Nicodemus because they realize that without Jesus and the Spirit bringing, there is no hope. This is the point that I came to as a child at eight years old on the front porch of my parents' house. The Spirit gave me life. Through his crucified son. He gave me faith to believe. And I came to the point of feeling totally and helpless. Utterly dependent. Then I turned to Jesus. I repented of my sins. I was saved. Now I thought I chose Jesus and then he saved me. Give me a break. I was eight. I was a little off in my understanding in how you come to faith. Years and years later, as I studied scripture as a pastor, the doctrines of grace, as I grew my faith and understanding of the scripture, I realized, no, Jesus chose me because he saved me. We'll come back to this verse and really hit it more in the coming weeks. But skip down to chapter 3, verse 13. I want you to see something here. Look what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we're going to get to the meaning of of this. We're going to preach on just this verse, but don't miss what Jesus is talking about. It's his crucifixion that would be coming. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. 
It's when you realize that you're helpless in your sin. It's at that point you say, what do I do? What do I do? When you wake from spiritual death and you realize your immediate thought is, I can't save myself. It's that moment of desperation as you hear the gospel message and you realize that if you look at Jesus in faith and his dying in your place on the cross, you go, I'm saved. Spiritually dead people are not desperate. That desperation means that you trade all that you have for what Jesus is giving. You go, I ain't got nothing. I'll trade it. You trade the sin of yours for his righteousness. In other words, he takes his goodness as the perfect son of God and then puts that into your life. You get credit for Jesus, his life, and he takes your sin, all of it, past, present, future sin, and he nails it to the cross. He kills that sin. He takes it. He sacrifices that. And in the result, we become God's children so that when God sees us, sees you, he no longer sees your wickedness, your sins, but he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So where do you go with this information? Can I just ask you, is there a burning in the core of you? Like are your sins right now feeling like you're guilty, beyond hope, like there's nothing you can do to save yourself? Friend, that is the work of the Holy Spirit waking you from the dead. Respond, respond, choose Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Repent of your sin. That burning, that guilt, that is a gift from God, believe it or not. His Spirit showing you how awful you are. Like, are you desperate? Desperate's a good place to be. At the very same time, the Holy Spirit is showing you that you can step into life of following him. Let those sins be washed away. Believe in faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Let's pray together. If you would just enter into a, just a time of prayer. If you want to get your little cup of communion out. Let me just talk to you just a couple of minutes. You Christians... Is there sin in your life? Christians, just go before the Lord and give it up. For me, my sins this week as I think of them, pride, lust, idolatry, covetedness. I coveted other people's stuff. I was angry at people. I was prideful. Now here's the thing. If you're a believer like me, because Jesus is my Savior, all those sins have been nailed to the cross. So why do I repent of them? Because I love Jesus. So if there's sin in your life, repent of it right now, Christian. Before you take communion, is there someone that you're angry with? Forgive them. You go, well, they're not worth forgiving. Uh, we don't forgive because people. We give forgive because of Jesus. Go ahead and take just a moment to repent. Now, if you're not a Christian, don't take this. this is, Paul says it's literally dangerous to your health to take this if you're not a believer. But if you're not a believer, look up here for just a minute. Or if you're not sure you're a believer, just catch my eyes. What does it take to become a believer? Simply believing on Jesus. To understand that although, like me, you are sinful, your sins have held you down. They've sentenced you to hell. You're an enemy of God. But the Bible says you can become a child of God, not an enemy, enemy, by simply believing. Believe in faith that Jesus is who he says he is, who he claims to be, the son of the living God. God himself come 
to earth to take on the flesh of man, to live a perfect life, and then to die the perfect sacrifice for sins. Just believe that. Brother, sister, I call you that because now if you believe that, you are a child of God. So turn your, turn your life over to him. Give him the keys to the car. I mean, give him the, the steering wheel, right? Let him guide your life. Start coming to church. Join us. We're all screwed up, but we'll help you as best we can. Some of us have a little bit more maturity. We'll help you walk in that new faith. But you trust Jesus that you're saved, not your feelings. The fact that you have been made right before holy God because of Jesus. Just talk to God. Now, if you believe that, you grab one of these little cups. All you who are Christians, you look up here. On the night before Jesus was betrayed by someone on the inside, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me and my death. This is the body of Christ. Take and eat it. Carefully open that little cup of juice. Right then, Jesus took a cup of wine. And he said, this represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says, as often as you do this, you drink this and eat my bread, eat the, my flesh and drink my blood, talking about the wine. He says, you do this to remember my death until I come. But then he goes, he's coming. He said, I'm going to drink the wine with you again in heaven. Amen? So we're remembering. This is the blood of Christ. Take and drink. Father, we remember what you have done for us. Your love for us. In giving us your son. Before we cared who you were. Thank you for calling us from death into life. Thank you for giving us your grace through the faith you have given us. We receive that grace in the body and blood of the Lord. We remember that grace. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.